This is Macro Horizons, episode 16, Cycle Endgame, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Benjamin and Jeffrey Hill to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 29th. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, it was a big week in the Treasury market. Ian, what's up with GDP? That's the most important question on the market's mind at this point. We had a very strong real GDP print for the first quarter of 3.2%. That's much higher than we've seen to start the year in a very long time. But still, the Treasury market rallied, and it did so in a steepening manner in which the two-year sector far outperformed. This is important to us insofar as timing the cyclical re-steepening of the curve, But before we elaborate on that, let's talk a little bit about the composition of GDP. First up, the biggest drivers were inventories and net exports. In an environment where the market is worrying about the state of the consumer, the idea that companies would be stocking up for future sales starts to become somewhat troubling, especially given the fact that consumption was the second weakest quarter in the last five years. Moreover, the ongoing trade war and the fact that net exports contributed a reasonable amount to the first quarter's GDP suggests that, if anything, that will probably be transitory. I think it's notable that the traditional first-half dynamic for GDP has been you see a disappointment in the first quarter that is made up for in the second quarter. We're making the argument that this is a reversal of the traditional pattern, and the upside surprise in the first quarter is going to see a bit of a give back in the second quarter. And then there was the final component within GDP, which was the disappointing core PCE numbers. At 1.3%, it's the weakest in a year, but more importantly, Given the Fed's recent focus on inflation, either from the upside or the downside, as being pivotal for the next move, whether it's a rate hike or a rate cut, we weren't all that surprised to see inflation being the biggest takeaway from Friday's release. So in that context, a re-steepening of the curve, as the market prices in a higher probability that the Fed needs to deliver some type of rate cut by the end of the year, follows intuitively. There's been a lot of chatter around effective Fed funds and the fact that at 244, it's starting to drift towards the top of the target range. In the past, the Fed has addressed this by delivering a fine-tuning rate cut to interest on excess reserves of five basis points. 
That was occurring in an environment in which the Fed was actively increasing policy rates. But with the Fed on hold, they're going to face a very difficult moment over the next quarter or two in which it might be practical to deliver another fine-tuning rate cut to interest on excess reserves. But in practice, what that would signal to the broader market in terms of a easing campaign or a more significant rate cut for Fed funds is truly going to complicate matters. So our takeaway from the week is that the cyclical re-steepening the curve might have just commenced, and we're certainly on board with any move beyond 25 basis points in two's tens. So Wednesday is a big day in the Treasury market. We got a couple things that tend to truly set the tone for Treasuries. First, we have the refunding announcement for the upcoming auctions, and then we also have the Fed. I don't think there are any major expectations for a shift in the monetary policy stance. And frankly, I can't even think of a great deal that would need to be changed in the statement. That doesn't mean, though, that the Fed will be a non-event. And this is largely due to the fact that from here on out, we have press conferences at every single meeting. This isn't necessarily to 100% imply that Powell will say something that totally recasts the narrative. But what this means is that every meeting going forward, including on Wednesday, there's incremental event risk and possibility of a kind of repricing in the front end where Powell to either signal that he still sees the potential for hikes or he could follow in the steps of Clary Dyer Evans and Even him indicating that cuts are a possibility in his mind would be interpreted by the market as rather dovish. And while that is an event risk, I think it's important to remember that this increased clarity around the mindset of the committee is exactly why they made this change and have now introduced press conferences at every meeting rather than just uh, the quarterly ones, which is how it used to be. Well, can we talk about the non-cut cut? There's this idea that there'll be a need for a fine-tuning adjustment on IOER. What do you make of that, John? So I've been kind of skeptical that we should expect any fine-tuning technical adjustment to IOER in the near term. The past week has started to evolve my thinking a little bit, and this is a natural function of Fed funds having drifted up in the range. So for several days, Fed funds has been at 244 six basis points below the top of the range, and you've just seen this broader shift up in overnight rates. What this opens the possibility, it's not a guaranteed thing, but it opens the possibility that the Fed, the FOMC, would decide to cut IOER by five basis points. Wouldn't that be kind of a hard communication thing without signaling a full cut is coming? It would be a more difficult communication challenge, and we've seen that the committee fully understands this. Last May's minutes made a comment that many participants explicitly preferred to do such a technical adjustment while they were hiking rates, because they could do the same thing, just hike IOAR 20, move everything else up 25, there you go, you get your five bips. The one thing I would point out, though, is the net effect should be almost flat on Fed funds. If Fed funds has drifted up, four or five basis points higher, and they lower IOER five basis points. They're doing this just to keep Fed funds flat, not to actually influence monetary policy or accommodation. Well, I think to Ben's point, however, 
a cut in IOER is simply going to be interpreted by the market as a precursor to a more significant easing cycle, even if it is simply what the Fed would characterize as a fine-tuning adjustment. I'd argue that that will probably keep the Fed from actually following through with a fine-tuning adjustment. However, it does beg the question, what else can they do? So I'd agree with that. This is more of a plumbing issue. So when you're thinking about how can you fix the plumbing, sometimes you have to think more outside the box. And one concept or idea that's been tossed around is a standing repo facility. So the way this would work, the idea is there's too much collateral on the street. Dealers, money funds, banks, whoever, however they structured it, could go to the Fed, give some collateral, get reserves in exchange, and that would help alleviate some of these issues. It seems that in some recent communication, there's not a huge urgency from the Fed to implement this. One of the things that'll be interesting to watch, though, is that urgency was before Fed funds was back to 244. Given where we're at now, given the price action we've seen in the past week, it's reasonable to think the urgency behind testing or deliberating a repo facility has increased. So we're not necessarily expecting anything in April, but directionally, this should increase the probability of a repo facility in 2019 and increase urgency for studying the topic inside the Fed. So the other big concern on Wednesday is going to be the refunding statement. One of the things that we have learned over the course of the last quarter or two is that the Treasury Department is done increasing the size of 10- and 30-year auctions, which, in the context of the recent performance of the Treasury auctions, I think actually suggests that we, if anything, might have a bit more of a downward bias on rates in the medium term. Aside from that, Ben, what else do you think we're going to learn from the refunding statement? I think this refunding announcement is going to be particularly interesting because, remember, this is the first one since the Fed formally announced the end of the balance sheet roll-off. And as we've talked about, that's going to leave the Treasury Department overfunded. So naturally, it is going to need to lead to some changes in the auction sizes. Now, we've thought and we continue to think that those changes coming in the bill market make sense, but it will be nice to hopefully receive some formal confirmation of that. And also, all else equal, you could see potentially some adjustment to the very front end of the coupon curve, twos and threes in particular. Not necessarily a baseline expectation, but a downside bias on offering sizes there is definitely not unreasonable. The other thing that jumps out to me in this context is if we actually see a reduction in front-end coupon sizes, that will exaggerate the curve steepening that has already arguably started to take place in twos tens. This has been an ongoing topic of debate here on Macro Horizons, but the last several weeks have really brought this issue to the fore. Essentially, we've been up against that 22-ish range for twos tens. What I have found most striking is that until recently, the bulk of the re-steepening moves have been very quick and the flattening trend then subsequently re-emerged. Now, admittedly, that has kept the twos tens curve in a defined range. However, we have now started to see the default being toward a steeper curve. 
And by that, I simply mean that the steepenings have been slow and gradual, very consistent with the bullish re-steepening that we've been looking for as the front end of the curve outperforms with twos trading well through effective Fed funds. So Ian, is it fair to say that you're giving a little bit more weight to this most recent steepening, just given the fact that it's, like you said, come a bit more slowly and more gradually versus these one-off spikes that we've seen at points so far this year? Certainly from a technical perspective, a grinding upward sloping channel in the curve should prove to be a lot more durable than the one-off repricings that we have seen. I'd also argue this is going to become much more commonplace, if not the baseline. We've started to roll into the cyclical re-steepening part of the curve. And what I mean that from a fundamental basis is we both agree the curve is drifting steeper. It's just a matter of timing it. On the other hand, you'll have moments of a flight to quality duration grab, which will flatten the curve. So you're going to see this bias and trend and drift higher with moments of capitulation in the other direction, kind of the reverse of what we saw for the past several years in the flattening trade. I think that this dynamic will also exaggerate what's been at play in 530s with the steepening there as well. Intuitively, that makes sense. The caveat that I would add, however, is that we're starting to see increased reports anecdotally or otherwise, that suggests that Japanese lifers are back in the treasury market buying on an unhedged basis. This is something that we heard early rumblings about at the beginning of the year, but now we have further confirmation through Japan's Ministry of Finance data that shows Japanese investors were significant buyers of foreign bonds in the week that corresponded to the settlement of April's 10- and 30-year auctions. And just for one additional point of nuance on this, as the curve drifts steeper, the punitive currency hedge for Japanese investors should get lessened a little bit. And the reason for this is when you're implementing a currency hedge in the cross-currency basis market, you're in essence paying three-month LIBOR, three-month OIS, and receiving 10-year treasury yields, if you want to think about it that way. As three-month rates are lower than the longer bond rates, just mechanically that helps to reduce the FX hedge costs. Of course, the basis complicates everything, but as a first pass, this should help entice a little more foreign demand. So how does the dollar's recent strength play into all that? Well, as we all know, I am far from a FX specialist, but... One first pass thought I would have is if there's incrementally more buying of dollar assets without a currency hedge, that should be supportive for the dollar, all else equal, at a moment when you're seeing DXY break to multi-month highs. And the strength in the dollar also has translated to tighter financial conditions, correct? Yes, that's correct. With the Fed as the central bank to the planet and the number of global liabilities denominated in dollars, dollar strength just means bigger bills to pay for a lot of the rest of the world. Speaking of being the central bank to the planet, what do you think the Fed takes away from the recent weakness in Australian inflation and the South Korean drop in real GDP? Well, as a short answer, nothing positive. One of the biggest downside risks to the U.S. economy has been, continues to be, a broad-based global slowdown. 
The weakness in Australian inflation led some to believe the RBA might even start to cut rates, which would portend a potential global easing cycle, not just a global on-pause cycle, while the weakness in South Korean GDP, also not only negative but significantly disappointing versus expectations, portends a broader slowdown in East Asia. All these things combined, and then you have a moment where the dollar strengthening, tightening global financial conditions. This is just going to serve to help keep the Fed on hold and stay in a very cautious stance of monetary policy in coming months and quarters while they try to get a sense of how all of this is going to play out. All of this with the backdrop of the Central Bank of China starting to move back from the super accommodative rhetoric and promises that we had heard earlier in the year. So none of this sounds overly good, to put it simply. Then why did we see the S&P 500 close at all-time highs? You mean basically unchanged from six months ago? Well, I think part of what the driver behind that was a reasonable earnings season. We didn't see the earnings drought that a lot of people had been anticipating, although it's not over yet. The other aspect is we continue to have rates very low. And with the market expecting the Fed to potentially cut by the end of the year, this notion that on a discounted cash flow basis alone that we should see higher valuation in equities has been with the market for quite some time. And more generally, if there are scary things abroad that are going to keep the Fed on hold for a while, while domestic data seems comparatively strong, the housing market is stabilizing, and to your point, earnings look fine-ish, then yeah, that seems like pro-equities. But more generally, this is a natural outlet when the Fed's trying to ease financial conditions. This is what it looks like to ease financial conditions. So with all of this in mind, I think it's interesting that when we look at the positional landscape in the treasury market, we've seen some significant changes over the course of the last several months. Recall that most of 2018, we spent contemplating how short the market was positioned, particularly in the futures market. What we have seen in 2019 is there's been a very significant short covering round in the belly of the curve, particularly FE and TY or fives and tens. But what has proven remarkably persistent is the massive short that we have seen in the ultra-long bond contract. Now, that makes sense even if we are shifting into a cutting cycle because the long bond should still underperform in that environment. More to the point, it's also reflective of this idea that the next big trade will be the cyclical re-steepener that we keep talking about. One of our preferred measures of positioning is the Stone and McCarthy survey. It most recently printed at 99.9 or effectively flat to the duration target. What that tells me is that unlike the case in 2018, there's no obvious pain trade in the market presently, with perhaps the exception of a rally in 30s. Do you think there are pain trades in other asset classes that could spill over into treasuries? I think one that we've touched on and that is becoming increasingly crowded is the short vol trade in equities, which is reminiscent of what we saw last year with the headlines around a lot of these ETFs 
really running into some problems when volatility eventually did return to the market. And to me, that just seems like a potential setup for an accelerating VIX, sharp tightening of financial conditions, flight to quality, but more specifically, a duration grab in the treasury market, pushing down 10 and 30 year yields. Or I would argue containing 10 and 30 year yields and limiting the extent to which the curve can re-steepen in the medium term, let's call it. The other point that I would make on this topic is that it is a version of the classic adage, don't fight the Fed, because the Fed is actively trying to keep volatility down, probably more so outside of the equity market than in the VIX per se. However, that's something that one has to take into account. So my takeaway is at least it's not a boring market. Well, you know what I always say, Ben, there's no such thing as a boring market, just a boring strategist. So does that mean that in an interesting market, there's no such thing as an interesting strategist? In the week ahead, the market will have a variety of new information, including the Fed statement, the employment report on Friday, as well as ADP and ECI. The personal consumption and inflation figures that come out on Monday are already known on a quarterly basis, as that was contained in Friday's GDP print. But if anything, the disappointment in core PCE suggests that there should be a downward bias for the actual March data. That's relevant insofar as the trajectory of inflation throughout the quarter will be important for the Fed's narrative on inflation. We don't expect anything dramatic out of the Fed. The Fed will remain on hold. The nuance there, as we mentioned before, is that there will be a press conference at this meeting, which will allow Powell to presumably offer a little more nuance in terms of how the committee is currently viewing the state of the real economy. Friday's price action created a few interesting technical developments of note. The first was an outside day lower on 10-year yields. That has historically been a bullish pattern. We've also been talking about the formation of a bullish head and shoulders, uh, not only in 10s, but also 2s and 5s. So a period in which a high volume zone is established in and around Friday's closing levels intuitively makes sense. It would also set the market up for an attempt at the 2019 low yield marks. We've been focused on the return of Japanese buyers into the treasury market, and it's notable that the week ahead is golden week when a lot of Japanese investors will be out on holiday. It might be tempting to think that would in and of itself be a bearish signal for the treasury market. However, when we briefly looked at the history over the last 10 years, we found no discernible pattern during golden week either in terms of the shape of the curve or the outright level of yields. In pondering the employment report and what that might mean for the direction of rates, it's very clear based on Friday's response to GDP that inflation is the key at this moment for the market. So within the employment report, we'll obviously be watching for any change in average hourly earnings in terms of trajectory, either an acceleration or a moderation of some of the recent gains that we've seen. We're reminded that so far in the cycle, at least, there hasn't been the translation between higher wage gains 
and realize core inflation. So the market is probably incrementally less willing to sell off on a stronger average hourly earnings print than it would be to rally, particularly in the front end, if average hourly earnings disappoint. The week will also end with a variety of Fed speakers. Just glancing at the calendar, it's interesting that the more dovish members of the committee are speaking on Friday. We have Evans, Clarita, Williams, and Bullard on the schedule. We're not sure exactly what the takeaway would be from that lineup. However, the lineup is notable. It's relevant given where we are in the policy cycle. And it's also interesting that it comes so quickly after the FOMC decision on Wednesday. We've reached the point in today's episode in which we would like to offer our sincerest thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to listen this far. And a special thanks to all of the listeners who have provided feedback. We never, in our wildest dreams, could have imagined that the Ian Show would be utilized for such a wide variety of off-label uses, including as a non-pharmaceutical sleep aid, an excuse for why the boss's comments went unheard, an opportunity to ignore fellow commuters, and as a disciplinary tool for unruly youngsters. If you don't finish your vegetables, you'll have to listen to Macro Horizons again. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. 
Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.